Well, earlier this year, my sons uh, spent a week in Westmead Hospital with severe stomach pain, uh, what turned out to be swollen lymph nodes in his gut caused by a virus. But for the first few days, it was a little bit of a mystery as the doctors performed tests and ruled out possible causes. Each morning, we'd have a visit from the medical team with the latest update. But towards the end of this week, in one of those visits, it dawned on me the sheer level of knowledge and expertise that was going into my son's case. Each day in a room somewhere in the hospital, teams of doctors would get together and analyse his condition. Experts in, in all the associated fields, together with all their trainees, all dedicated to ensuring that their patients got the best treatment. And so, when we left the hospital, my son on the mend, we left incredibly grateful that the medical profession is a meritocracy, that the people who made the ultimate decisions about his treatment were some of the best qualified brains in the country. Now, when you consider the alternatives, there is much to love about a society that operates broadly on the basis of merit. It's good when the people who run companies and schools and institutions and governments have got there because in the main, they've proven that they are good at it. I doubt many of us uh, here would want to go back to a time where the big decision makers and influencers were there simply by virtue of the family they were born into or the land they owned or their gender. I want the best qualified doctor I can get when it comes to making treatment decisions. But as good as meritocracy can be, there's also, plenty of, there's also plenty of situations where the idea that you have to earn your place can be just as destructive as the idea that you're entitled to it because of your family or your, your gender. Today, we're going to be reflecting on the historical account of a conversation that took place in Jerusalem some 2,000 or so years ago, one spring night in the heart of the city. Um, that conversation that we just heard about in our Bible reading just before. It's an encounter between one of the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, whose actions over the previous week had set Jerusalem abuzz. And the conversation that takes place is ultimately all about who gets to enter God's kingdom. What kind of person goes to heaven, we might say today. Now, before we dive in, I wonder what assumptions you carry about this topic. Whether you're a lifelong follower of Jesus or someone just investigating Christianity, what ideas do you carry around with yourself day by day that then affect your own perception of whether or not you're heading for heaven? For some of us, swimming in the meritocratic soup of our culture just leads us to assume that of course the people who get to heaven are the people who have earned their way there perhaps by doing good things or religious things or whatever else it might be. For others, we may just assume that it's more like an inherited thing. You know, my family's a Christian family, we have been for generations, and so on you drift with the assumption that you'll inevitably be okay. Well, what we're going to see in this conversation is that entering God's kingdom is not about merit, nor about entitlement, but about something else entirely. So it'd be good to have uh, your Bible open, if you've got it there with you at John chapter 3, uh, as we reflect on this conversation together. 
Our story begins with the introduction of this religious leader, a man named Nicodemus. He's an impressive man in many ways. Certainly he would have impressed the average first century Jew. Verse 1 tells us he belonged to the party of the Pharisees who were famous for their scrupulous observance of the Old Testament law. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like parliament and the high court rolled into one. And then later in the story, we learn too that he's also a leading teacher of the people, akin to a top university professor, perhaps. And so Nicodemus, he's an impressive guy. If anyone has got the qualifications to enter God's kingdom, then it's him. Well, after an exhilarating week or so of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem, you know, teaching and miracles and overturning the tables in the temple, Nicodemus decides that the time is right to go and have a one-to-one with Jesus. And so he tracks him down one night and begins the conversation with what, relatively at least, is quite a warm-hearted comment. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, he seems quite positive, doesn't he? Especially uh, when you compare his comment here to those of the other Pharisees and Jewish leaders, calling Jesus demon-possessed, for example. From what he had seen of Jesus, Nicodemus was willing to entertain the idea that perhaps in Jesus he has found an ally and a colleague in doing God's work. But... As warm as that comment was, scratch a little bit deeper and you see that in his approach to Jesus, Nicodemus was badly misguided. At the start of verse 2, the author specifically points out that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now, at one level, the risk to his reputation meant that he needed to come secretly and so coming at night was a necessity. But more specifically, significantly rather, Night, in John's Gospel, is a symbol of moral and spiritual darkness. So while Nicodemus' religious qualifications may have looked impressive to some, John's saying, rather, that the reality is that Nicodemus was actually far from God and he was in spiritual peril. And when you look more closely at Nicodemus' opening words, this picture becomes even clearer. As positive as he may seem to be about Jesus, he still comes with, the, with an air of superiority. He tells Jesus, here's what my colleagues and I have decided. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Implication? So tell me a little more about yourself, Jesus, so our assessment can be made more complete. Now, I hope you can see how such an attitude puts someone in a perilous spiritual situation. If Jesus is who he says he is, God in the flesh, well, you don't come to him as a superior to make assessments about him, do you? No, he is the one who sits over us. So how's Jesus going to respond? Well, far from receiving Nicodemus's praise, oh, you're too kind, Nicodemus, why, yes, I am a teacher come from God. Jesus sets about totally reconstructing Nicodemus' understanding of how God's universe works, an attempt to take Nicodemus from darkness to light. And Jesus begins by revealing what to Nicodemus is a totally unexpected need that all people have. Verse 3, 
Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He's saying, you need to get this, Nicodemus, that all people, whether they are an uber-religious Pharisee and leader of the people, or whether they are a non-Jew who has never heard of the Jewish God, all people need an entire system reset if they want to see God's kingdom. It's not just a case of trying a bit harder, changing some habits. No, if people are to be fit for God's kingdom, they need to come into existence all over again in a totally new way. Now to Nicodemus, what Jesus has said here would have sounded totally absurd. As a Pharisee, he had a very clear picture of how someone gets into God's kingdom. The prophets of old had spoken about this kingdom, a time when God would raise up his chosen king and place him on, his, on the throne to rule over all the nations with justice. And the way the Pharisees understood that would come about was by meticulous obedience to God's laws. The kingdom was something to be earned. But what Nicodemus failed to grasp was firstly that in Jesus, the kingdom of God was now breaking into history. A dynamic kingdom that wasn't about lines on a map and earthly kings, but about God's reign and his saving authority in people's lives. And secondly, Nicodemus just did not compute with the idea that entry could be anything other than by merit. Being born again, this was an utterly absurd idea to him, even at a metaphorical level. See, being born, being born is not something a person has control over. I contributed nothing to my birth and I'm sure you were the same. So being born again, well, that simply didn't fit into the framework of working hard to enter the kingdom. And so in an attempt to show Jesus how absurd his proposition is, Nicodemus incredulously replies in verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. In other words, don't you realise, Jesus, that what you've just said leaves no room for anyone to earn their way into the kingdom? Now, as Nicodemus speaks here, I think he also speaks for all of us who have drunken deeply from the well of our meritocratic culture and started to apply that to our standing before God and to how we enter heaven. Surely it is just a case of being the best me I can be, of putting my mind to it and earning entry into heaven, isn't it? Well, what we get next from Jesus is an explanation of things from another angle, which emphasises again that entry is not by merit. And his main point here is that this rebirth that he's spoken about is a work of God himself. It's God the Spirit who brings rebirth. Which means that entry into the kingdom is not about being good enough by what we've done, rather it's about what God has done in us. Jesus begins his next reply by pretty much repeating what he said before, but with one big difference. Instead of speaking of being born again, he speaks of being born of water and of spirit and the spirit. Uh, it's the same thing that he's referring to, the same moment he's referring to, but this time by speaking about being born of water and the spirit, he's speaking from the angle that emphasizes this is God's work. 
Now, you might well ask, what's going on with the water here? Uh, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, it's not about baptism or, or, or a reference to waters breaking in natural birth, as some have, have suggested. No, it's a reference back to the promise of God in the Old Testament, recorded by the prophet Ezekiel some 600 years earlier. In chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel, God speaks of a day when, quote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That was the promise God had made to his people in the Old Testament. And Jesus, when he says here that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit, he's just picking up on that promise. The point is, to come under God's reign, we need him to cleanse us from our impurities, from our selfishness, from our rejection of his ways. God himself is utterly pure and perfect. He is totally good, free from all evil. And to step inside his kingdom, we need to be made right for him. Like kids with grubby knees about to jump into bed with fresh, with, into a bed with freshly uh, clean, crisp white sheets, we need to be cleaned, um, except perhaps multiply the grubbiness um, of us by about a thousand times as we stand before the Lord. And so that's what birth, uh, the birth of water and the Spirit is all about, cleansing us from the inside, making us new and clean. And what's more, this is a cleansing that only God can achieve. In Ezekiel, he promised that I will cleanse you, I will put a new spirit in you. And Jesus makes the same point back in his conversation with Nicodemus when he says in verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's saying humans, they can only produce more humans, more people who are impure and selfish and who reject God and do our own things. A flesh gives birth to flesh. But to be cleansed, to receive a totally new nature that now walks in alignment with God and his ways, well, we need God to do that work in us. We need the spirit to give birth to spirit. And so to come back to the big point Jesus makes here, we simply cannot do in ourselves what needs to be done to become ready for entry into God's kingdom. We need God to perform this miraculous transformative work in us. And the way this takes place, Jesus tells Nicodemus, is like the wind. Just like humans can't control or even fully understand the movement of the wind, so we can't control the movement of the Spirit. This, uh, by the way, is why Christians are always misguided when they think they can force someone else to become a Christian, as has happened at different points in human history, unfortunately, whether it be through wars or laws or something else. Now, at this point in the conversation, it seems that some things are perhaps starting to break through to Nicodemus. He's struggling to understand, but his next question there in verse 9, how can this be, is far more genuine than his last one was. No longer is he attempting to trip up Jesus' logic. Instead, he, he, he's intrigued. He wants Jesus to go further. And Jesus begins his answer with a rebuke. You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? See, Nicodemus should have understood these things. 
given that he should have known the parts of the Bible like God's promises in Ezekiel. But the main point of what Jesus says here next is that all the things he's been talking about can happen because they will be unlocked by his crucifixion, the death that brings life. It's his crucifixion that he's talking about when he says in verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He likens it to when Moses lifted up the snake during the time of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. God's people had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were on their way to the land God had promised them. But they began to, began to complain and to grumble and even to long for a return to Egypt. And in response to their continuing ingratitude, God sent venomous serpents among the people. But anyone who was bitten could then look to a bronze snake that God had instructed Moses to fashion, which had been lifted up on a pole, and they would be saved from the fatal effects of the venom. So Jesus here says, I am like that bronze snake. I'll be lifted up on the cross, and anyone who looks to me and believes in me will have eternal life. See, when Jesus died on the cross, perhaps a year or two after this conversation, there was far more going on there than the tragedy of the execution of an innocent man. There was more going on than even a positive example of dignified suffering. When Jesus died on the cross, this was God in the flesh, the one who came from heaven, verse 13 says, dying in the place of sinners. The just punishment of God that should have fallen on us for our selfishness and our rejection of him, well, that was now falling on a man who never rejected God, who had lived a life of moral perfection. And it's when we put our trust in him, that's what belief here means in this passage, when we put our trust in him, that suddenly eternal life opens up ahead of us. It becomes ours. Eternal life here is just another way of speaking about being in God's kingdom. Uh, it's not merely about living forever, uh, as if it's only about the length of that life. No, it's also talking about a new and better kind of life. We've now been purified. We've been, we, we can come into the presence of God, the giver of all good things, and we can enjoy him and his goodness forever. That's what eternal life is about. Now, do you remember Nicodemus's question that Jesus is answering here? How can this be? How can it happen that a person can be born of the Spirit, cleansed and ushered into God's kingdom? Well, that's how. Because Jesus made the swap for me and for you if you've put your trust in him. Taking from God the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of him. And ultimately, what this all reveals is the heart of the one true God. His boundless love. And this is what the next session, verses 16 to 18, in the account is all about. Now, from verse 16 onwards, it's most likely that this is John, the narrator, writing his own God-given reflection on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, rather than a continuation of Jesus' speech. Um, 
there was no such thing as quote marks in the original, and so um, we've got to work out where that point was that Jesus' speech ends. Uh, but in any case, not much really hangs on whether these are Jesus or the narrator's words. Uh, and the question here really is why? Why would God do this? Embark with his son on this mission of cleansing and remaking his people via the cross. Well, it's not because of how good his people were, uh, the Pharisees' answer to the question, that God would restore his people because his people were obedient to his commands. No, it's simply and purely motivated by his love. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the thing that's clear right throughout John's Gospel in particular is that the world is not lovable or lovely. Almost everywhere when John uses the word world, it's a byword for wickedness and evil. And it's clear here too. John goes on to describe how without trust in Jesus, people stand condemned already. God, the perfect judge, will justly punish them. But such is God's love that in spite of this unloveliness, he sent his son into the world to save the world. He didn't have to do it. There was no sense in which we, humanity, deserved it. But he did it because of his love. And so a question for you today is, is this your God? Whether you consider yourself a believer or not, when you think of God, when you picture him, is he a God of love who does big, impossible, unthinkable things because of that love? Or is he small and petty, an invisible examiner in the sky, perhaps? Well, John concludes in the final three verses with what he calls in verse 19, the verdict. And what he gets at here is that really in the end, there are, there are only two alternatives for how to live. There's the way that attempts desperately to find refuge in the darkness and there's the way that comes into the light. Jesus, when he came, came as light into a dark world and like cockroaches, humanity scurried away to hide in the shadows. But the good news is that because of the cross and the rebirth brought by God, by his spirit, God has now made it possible for us to live in the light. Indeed, to be lights in the world as he continues to work in us. Do you remember that description before of Nicodemus' approach to Jesus? That it took place at night that this was a symbolic of the spiritual and moral darkness that Nicodemus lived in. Do you remember that? Well, you might wonder, whatever happened to Nicodemus? Did he come into the light? We don't hear much, much from him uh, in our own passage. Well, Nicodemus appears twice more in John's account, in his Gospel. At the end of John chapter 7, he sticks his neck out suggesting that the religious leaders were wrong to condemn Jesus without putting him on trial. Now, it's probably too much to, to, to say that this suggests belief, but certainly there's an openness there to Jesus. But then finally, in John chapter 19, Nicodemus appears again, 
this time with Joseph of Arimathea. He takes Jesus' dead body from the cross, wraps it in spices and lays it in Joseph's freshly cut tomb. One can only assume this is an act of trust. He looked in faith to the one who had been lifted up and now possessed eternal life in him. So what about you? The great challenge of this passage is, have you looked to the one who has been lifted up? In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we've seen that entering God's kingdom is not about merit, nor about entitlement. It's about God's work in you. It's about how he takes the death of Jesus in our place and by his spirit applies this death to us, cleansing us and making us anew, those who now walk in the light. And what this means is if you're someone who's considering Christianity, then the best next step for you is simply to take the plunge. Just try on trusting Jesus. You don't have to wait until you've fixed up your life or until your Bible knowledge is good enough or, or for whatever else it might be. You don't have to become like the person who was raised in the Christian home with the Christian family heritage. Now, all you have to do is just plunge in, trust him, hand over to him the controls of your life and allow God's spirit to do that great work of rebirth in your soul. Well, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you give us new birth by your spirit as we look to your son in faith that Jesus' death enables cleansing from sin and entry into your kingdom. Thank you for that supreme expression of your love at the cross. And for those today who are considering Christianity, Lord, I pray that you would help them to take that plunge, to trust Christ, knowing that it's in him and not in our own works that we have eternal life. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen.